Hi, this is Erin James Brown. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I serve as the interim site pastor at Urban Village Church, Edgewater. Urban Village Church does bold, inclusive, and relevant ministry for people who were traumatized by church, people who feel overchurched, and even the non-churched folks. If you identify with any of these signifiers, we're so glad you're listening. Would you consider helping us continue this Jesus-loving ministry in and across Chicago and over the internet? You can make a generous recurring gift by going to our website, urbanvillagechurch.org backslash give. And thanks for helping us with your ears, actions, and dollars to build up God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And now, here's the latest sermon. Good morning. My name is Erin James Brown. Uh, I currently, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. I currently serve as the site pastor here at uh, UVC Edgewater, the interim site pastor. And I'm so glad you're here. Will you read with me? The scripture is going to be on the screen behind me. There's Bibles out in the front. If you don't have a Bible or would like to pick one up and read this very strange kind of weird text, please take one. They are available for you. Our reading comes from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. While Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I would like to invite Lynette Pokua up to the stage this morning. We have some, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're doing something different this morning. Lynette and I are co-preaching. Uh, Lynette is a, currently a student at Chicago Theological Seminary. Uh, she leads an organization and uh, research called Enneagram of Color. In Color. In Color. <laughs> um, and I'm just so grateful for her contributions to our community. I'm glad you're here with us. Yeah, excited. Will you pray with me? God, you demand forgiveness, demanding that we forgive ourselves, ourselves in order that we may forgive others and invite them into reconciled relationship. Help us to be honest about the ways that we have messed up, the things we have done and the things we have left undone. 
Give us courage to move forward as free people, baptized into newness of life. And so we pray in the name of our brother and friend, Jesus. Amen. So this morning is going to look a little different. It's more of a conversation. We're going to try not to um, stand awkwardly behind each other, uh, gawking, but like moving about the stage, sitting, standing, having a conversation about this text that we both studied this week and prepared for and in conversation with each other for the whole week. Uh, so, Lynette, we've been studying this passage. Mm-hmm. You've been studying particularly from a womanist theological lens. Womanist theology is an academic study of studying the text from a black female perspective, believing that there is something unique that black women bring to the word when they read it and can share with the rest of us. Um, so what is it you learned about the passage this week you want us to know? Yeah, so I've really gotten to place myself into the text. Um, and so Jesus, I imagine the disciples walking off and, and Jesus enters the temple. And a group of people circle around him and they're wanting to learn and understand, get gain hope and peace and all of a sudden, you have these Pharisees come in and totally interrupt what Jesus is teaching and just puts this woman in front of everyone to see. And I imagine her with her clothes sort of torn, maybe stripped off completely. And I think clearly she's being humiliated, is made to be objectified in, in, this, in this scene. And so a little bit about the Pharisees, some of you may know they are these elite, elitist religious leaders, and they're bent on keeping the status quo, right? They're oftentimes subjugating others. They are in cahoots with the establishment, the, the Roman rule specifically, maintaining this horrific system of exploitation. And I think they're caught up in this system of exploitation. They're really wealthy, unashamed about receiving any sort of payments from the Roman Empire, and they often take from their own people. And they're oftentimes placing shame and condemnation, um, making sure that folks um, uphold these relentless Jewish laws. And I'm sort of curious about what's going on in this passage, because the Pharisees act like the woman isn't there, this beloved woman, this child of God, as if she's not human. And so I'm convinced this beloved woman did nothing wrong. I don't think she was caught in adultery. Um, I think she may have been at the wrong place at the wrong time. I have questions like maybe she was a scapegoat. Um, I as I was doing my research, women are oftentimes, and I think still today in some places, oftentimes treated as property, second-class citizens. They're made to not feel, to made feel as human, right? Um, And so I think the Pharisees just kind of pulled her off the street and used her as this like object lesson, this after-school special for Jesus to learn his lesson. And I, I think that they're just trying to fulfill their ego for self-gratification, to be able to just sort of impose their legalistic piety on everyone else. 
but who knows, you, you know? Um, but I think this is what is happening in the text. I think Jesus gets fed up. Um, he knows what's going on. And I honestly think he's angry. Um, but again, in the Pharisees' eyes, Jesus is this social, political agitator, and he is putting their religious power and social power at risk. He might take it. This is the fear that the Pharisees have. But again, Jesus refuses to engage. And so what he does is he places his finger on the ground. And I think that's just a symbol of him, again, refusing to participate in the shaming of this woman and refusing to be a part of this crafting of this false narrative about her. And I think he's not ignoring. I think some people might say, oh, he's going down, drawing, whatever he's drawing, and he's just ignoring. But I think he's choosing to resist, to resist the Pharisees, to resist, to resist the system, to resist the empire. I also think as Jesus is down there, he is processing, and he's trying not to get off on these Pharisees who are acting like fools, right? <laughs> um, and so Jesus does this clever thing. Jesus is a very clever guy. He's like, in a very diva-like fashion, I think. He's like, who among you have not sinned? And I read this again, and I think Jesus is like, one of y'all at one point was doing something freaky in some part of your life, okay? <laughs> so you cannot be calling anybody out, right? <laughs> don't lie. I really think Jesus is like, don't lie. Don't shame this woman for what she may or may have not done. We don't know. And so again, in his diva-like fashion, goes back down and just starts to draw whatever he's drawing on the ground. And I think the Pharisees are absolutely drenched in humiliation. Mm. They're completely embarrassed. And I imagine, I envision the Pharisees kind of just like moonwalking out one <laughs> by one out the door, right? <laughs> And this woman is just glancing as they're leaving. And then Jesus comes up. He removes the dust from himself, diva-like fashion, and says, who has shamed you here? And again, I just picture this beloved woman feeling like a weight is being lifted off of her, this weight of shame and I imagine her looking like me, right? Looking like many women in this room, specifically black women, who have often been bound by these false narratives, these false caricatures of what society portrays us as. I can think of, and of course it's to condemn us, to shame us. I can think of archetypes like the Jezebel no one has heard of it, is just this over-sexualized version of what a black woman is. Or the mammy archetype, which is this person without a sexuality <laughs> and doesn't experience um, sex or sexuality at all. And, or the, the common archetype of the sapphire, the angry black woman trope, mm. right? All of these images, I think, reinforce the dehumanization of women, specifically black women. But when Jesus spoke those words to her, who has shamed you, I felt in that moment 
that she was free from all of those untruths. She could really, really believe that she was free. And when I read that text, I also believed that I could be free too, right? Mm. And we see in these, these glimpses of that after, right? When she says, no one condemns me. And then Jesus says, go and sin no more. And for me, I think Jesus actually, what he's saying here is go and be free. Be free. Let the truth set in that you're a beloved child of God. You're beloved. Jesus is actually looking into her eyes, acknowledging her presence, which as you study historically, Jewish men don't tend to do that, look into the eyes of the woman and acknowledge her presence. So this is really significant here. This is a significant moment here because what we see is Jesus not only offers a healing gaze, but in word and in his presence embodies the truth that she is human, Mm. that she is worthy of respect and dignity. Cool. So that's the the gospel according to Lynette. (laughs) Uh, Sort of. (laughs) Well, well, the way we read scripture is bringing our experience to the text and uh, our reading uh, infuses with how we read it and how our experience shapes how we read it. Um, and it teaches us like how being in dialogue with one another is really important so that we learn perspectives of the text from each other as well. Um, it comes from a long history of us reading and talking about the Bible together. Um, this passage, as you might or might not know, is very popular. Has anybody heard it before? Uh, interestingly enough, this passage occurs only once. We have four Gospels. The stories often repeat in all four Gospels, but it only appears in one of the Gospels, which is significant in that it only happened once, or it's only in one of the texts. So that makes us think maybe it wasn't important to the other writers. Maybe they didn't feel like it actually happened, so they didn't have to include it. But John believes it is so essential for his text that he uplifts this story and makes sure that we include it make sure that we read it. It's one in some churches too. Some churches follow what's called the lectionary, which is prescribed readings that happen each week that the church has participated in for centuries together. We all read the same text over and over. And in the lectionary, this passage is left out. They don't even read this in the regular church calendar over a course of three years. So the fact that we all know this story is really interesting The fact that it only happens once in the whole Bible and all four Gospels, the fact that it isn't usually read in churches that follow the lectionary, but we all understand and have heard of Jesus bending down on the ground and writing, and what what the hell is he writing? I don't know. We'll get into it. Um, So the fact that we all have heard this story before, but that it comes, we come at it with different interpretations, and maybe you've heard it told from different people's perspectives told from the perspectives of the Pharisees who come dragging this woman, or told from the story of Jesus and we obsess about what he's writing, what he's thinking. We don't often hear the story told from Lynette's perspective of from the woman, who is she? Where did she come from? Where, where was she before they found her and caught her mid-adultery and dragged her into this? Uh, so these are all interesting questions we should be bringing to the text every time we read it. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and trying to Im imagine who and what's going on. So my, I, I'm going to offer some counterpoints to Lynette's story as well, uh, because I am a good Pharisee. Uh, <laughs> I, I believe in upholding order and truth and doctrine, and we got to follow some rules to do all of that. So sometimes we paint the Pharisees as being these people who held a lot of power, which they did. And uh, there's a saying, ultimate power corrupts. Wait, wait. Absolutely. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. That uh, power can cause you to do things that you didn't want to get involved with because it uh, creates more power for yourself. I don't believe that the Pharisees were not... Um, unable of being corrupted or unable of perpetuating systems of violence against each other. But deep down, I want to firmly believe that they like had good hearts that just wanted to obtain, uh, like just have some rules we're all going to agree to. Uh, the other thing about this story that we tend to think about is Jesus. What is Jesus doing in this passage? He remains silent for most of the time. And you kind of touched on this in talking about Jesus as a resistor, as what he's doing. And what scholars really believe is, yes, he was resisting. In ancient Near Eastern culture, when you are choosing to turn away from a conversation and choose to write instead, which writing was a sign of uh, having some education as well, you are choosing to disengage from the conversation. And it's an active um, thing that you participate in saying, I'm not going to even acknowledge that. I'm not going to warrant that with an answer or with my gaze or even a oh, eye roll. I'm just going to turn away and start writing. So it's the ultimate shade. So if you're looking for a new way to, um, to, to shame someone, Jesus is a good one to follow. Uh, <laughs> and the Pharisees know, they recognize what he's doing. They see and they know because of how their culture has taught them, this is what he's doing. He's kind of, uh, the way he's participating is still an active way of participating. And Jesus does this for reasons, we think, because uh, they drag this woman in. And the questions Lynette brought up for us uh, are, who is she? Where does she come from? And why do we not know any of her story? Uh, they quote, the Pharisees quoted, uh, Moses tells us that we should stone such a woman. And they're quoting uh, the law given to Moses and provided by Moses to the people of God from Deuteronomy 22. If you want to go look it up, you don't need to, because all it says is when we catch someone in the middle of adultery, we bring both perpetrators. And they're very heteronormative. We bring the male and the female. And they both get stoned. So what's happening in this text that there's only one person present and that we're quoting the law of Moses as if we know what we're doing? Where is this other person? So some scholars speculate uh, the man, is, is this society just kind of uh, continuing to objectify women and hold them to a different standard? That's why she's brought here by herself. Is, did, this is uh, controversial, but some scholars wonder this, did the Pharisees set her up? Did they have one of their men so that they knew? Because how would they know exactly where she was when she was doing this thing? How would they know how to find her and catch her in the act? What if somebody she was getting freaky with was one of those Pharisees, a freaky Pharisee? And so <laughs> they bring only her knowing that they have caught her in this. Some other uh, queer theologians and queer scholars wonder, was she caught with another woman? Um, and so they can't bring another man into this conversation. Who was this other woman possibly? Who was, 
we, we have no idea. There's no way to know who this other participant was if there even was one. Was she a sex worker that they just knew was uh, sleeping with people for, in order to survive in her life? And so they brought her along. Was she a woman who was poor on the side of the street that they could just drag? Was there nothing that she even participated in? We know nothing of her story, and so it becomes this theological imagination we all participate in when we read the text to imagine these characters as much larger than what we're presented with, and that's the beauty of what the Bible tells us. Uh, and so we, we want to assume the Pharisees are terrible people. Maybe, maybe not. Yes, yes, they're terrible people. And yes, what are they trying to teach us, tell us? What are they trying to tell their community at the time? But we also know that Jesus was doing an active form of resistance against what they were doing and presenting, and that Jesus draws our attention back to the woman because when he talks, he directs his conversation towards the woman. And for the first time, she's given language. She says words. All she says is, no one. Who stoned you? No one. But the fact that she's given words spoken from her mouth gives us significance about who she is, and it's why you and I remember this story, even though maybe we never should have. So, Lynette, I want to know. So, one of my favorite games when I read the Bible, because uh, you can play games while you read the Bible, um, is to play the game, Who Am I in this story? Like, if this were a play or a movie, Who's going to cast it? And you know, I love myself and I look good on camera, so I'm going to put myself in the story. Uh, so I pick a character of who I would play. Who do I identify most with? And so I'm interested, who do you identify with in the story? If, you, if we were casting a movie, who would you play? Right, right. So, and why? I am, I, I am kind of embarrassed about the story I'm about to share, but I do identify as the Pharisee for the most part. I'm, I, I can think of distinct experiences in my youth group where we would have testimony nights, right? And it's not like the testimony here about how God's moving in your life, maybe, but generally it's about where you've come short, what sins mm. you've committed, mm. and generally it's sexual sins. Oh. And so... I, <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that when people would come up and share these very vulnerable things, I, and just to disclaimer, I'm not a very confrontational person, and if anyone knows about the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 9, so I definitely don't do confrontation. Which is the peacemaker. Which is the you peacemaker. Peace everywhere. Yeah, and so I was sort of pushed and encouraged to kind of Day when people were not were doing things that were wrong, that were a sexual offense, and I, I would, I would, yeah. People, ahead. people knew this about you, and encouraged you to be. Yeah, because I was a leader. I yeah. was like a worship leader. Oh. I was. I, I had various leadership roles in the in the youth group, and so that was one of the things they would tell me to do: is like, hey, like make sure you keep this person accountable. And for their sexual sins. For their sexual sins. So it was just kind of like an awkward <laughs> position. Did, to it, I don't want to know how you did that. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I said no words. I was like, could you not maybe do that? Like, it was just You just like walk very, around with a blowhorn. Like, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of scared to do it because I'm a peacemaker. So this is, this, is, this is awkward for me. Trust me. I don't want to call you out, but I kind of have to shame you right now. Mm. Um, and, and so in hindsight, when I reflect on those many instances where I felt like I had to do that, I, I felt guilty. I felt like... I, it was just terrible to have to shame people and put them in a position to feel like sexuality is something to be shamed about. It, it, it's, it's a natural thing, right? It is a beautiful experience, part of the human experience. And for me to have been taught to shame people um, was, was pretty traumatic. And in some ways, I'm still learning how to heal from that. Um, and then I also asked questions of, what message did it send me as a black woman? What did it send to other black women that would come up um, and share? And I think it just sort of reinforced those false narratives and those false archetypes that I explained about women of color in general too. Um, and so I think, again, it incurred this shame, this guilt about our bodies, about our sexuality, about mm -hmm. just natural desires that humans have. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was, that was my experience. You yeah. were you were asked to play the role of the mammy, the one like mm. not sexual. Yeah, like very pure, good mm. type character. Yeah, and that and to contrast that with the Jezebel. Approach. Yeah, exactly. In your fellow, it, it, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That and I just want to say, that was wrong. What you were encouraged to do and participate in. Um, and also I identify with that, I think, too, because my youth group, I was a leader as well and was rewarded for the times when I um, upheld the rule of law, which is probably why I like have sympathy for the Pharisees now, too. But um, it, was, it was promoted as this worthy thing that you were doing. And you were caught up in this system of a youth group. Uh, you had a youth minister and they had a pastor over them, I'm assuming, and you had parents, I'm guessing, around you, mm -hmm. encouraging you to be a part of this activity right. that was bigger than you. Right. And that also makes me see, wonder, hearing your story now as you reflect back on it. And you said you feel shame and guilt thinking about it. Um, now you have moved into the role of the woman in a way. Like right. you're prepared for you all wouldn't do this because you're beautiful, lovely, beloved children of God. But, you know, progressive Christians to shame you for upholding what you had thought was right at the time. Right. And, it's something that I was conditioned to believe. Yeah. And now feeling ashamed of yourself mm -hmm. in that own situation. Right. Um, it makes me want to take high school Lynette and hold her. And it also... Me too. Yeah. <laughs> me too, guys. <laughs> But it reminds me, too, of how reading scripture in a healthy, important way helps us find humanity in each of these characters, but also, like, seeing that they are more complicated than we, like, script them out to be. That it's, they're not just archetypes. They are fully formed people. We right. just don't get to know all of their right. story. And we kind of move in between each of those characters at different points in our life. Right. I think just in our conversations before this, we, I had 
realized that the, the line between Pharisee and this beloved woman is really hard to make mm. a distinction. And so sometimes I, I can see myself in the role of the woman and I can see myself in the role of the Pharisee. And yeah, there's just the, the line is not as, as clear and cut as we would like it to be. And although it's not clear or cut, it is clear for us how Jesus participates in the story and what Jesus is doing, which is resisting being caught up in the systems. Mm-hmm. So uh, while the Pharisees, it's easy to be caught up in a system that shames others mm-hmm. and join in on that and also to actively resist. So what he's teaching mm-hmm. is to say, you don't have to participate in this. Right. It might seem weird for a second, but to actively um, set that aside mm-hmm. is the liberating thing, which mm-hmm. I think is what you were saying in talking, your interpretation of what Jesus says when Jesus says, go and sin no more, which is mm-hmm. the most unhelpful phrase, right? Like, what is he saying to her? Why? Right. I don't know. What does it mean? Right. And then also the beauty of biblical interpretation is that we then get to like kind of talk it out. Right. So you said for you, it was Jesus says, go and sin no more. And that meant? For me in actuality, it was go and be free. No longer do you have to feel the weight of that shame that has been placed upon you. No longer do you have to be in bondage right? No longer do you have to have those false narratives, those false caricatures about you. You no longer have to carry that. Um, Go be free. Go live into this truth that you are a child of God. Yeah. And some, so in theological circles, uh, theology was dominated in the, um, if forever, uh, by men. (laughs) Um, And uh, predominantly until really recently, like in the 1960s and 70s, um, new types of theologies about feminist theology, womanist theology, queer theology, liberation theology start coming to the forefront, teaching us new ways to read scripture and understand it. Um, but scholarship for a long time said the major sin, the mega sin that everybody commits and nobody should, and you should all feel ashamed of it, is pride. Have you ever heard that before? the sin of pride. And as scholarship has evolved, as more people have had access to education and been given a voice and been given publication deals and all these kinds of great things, uh, we've started to question this mega sin. Is that the actual sin? And that informs how we should interpret what Jesus says, go and sin no more, right? And so in womanist theology, in black female theology, it says the major sin that people have been taught and continue to participate and get caught up in is the sin of self-negation. The sin of denying of yourself, wondering if you're good enough or worthy enough. And that, scholars, womanist scholars say, is a sin. Not valuing yourself the way God values you is a sin. And my mind is like, That just opens up a new world around sin for me that I kind of love. And then when Jesus says, like you say, go and sin no more, it is go. Do not deny yourself or how much you are loved. Mm. Don't let this one experience define you and who you are. Um, It is a powerful force of freedom Jesus offers her and gives her to go and sin no more. Right. Um, And... Yeah. 
Yeah, so then... <laughs> we have a minor script. No, no, you're fine. So then what I hear from the scripture is, how do we respond as Jesus followers? Mm-hmm. What are we seeing in the text? Well, we're seeing a people, we're seeing women specifically, they're oftentimes dehumanized. So what are we as Jesus followers, what are we called to do, Right. And I think Jesus is calling us to respond in a way that reinfuses human dignity, human worth, right? Respect. Reinfusing this idea again that we're beloved. We're beloved children of God. And so as we kind of conclude this, I think we're in we're in this Lent season, right? This season of reflection. Um, and so what we want to be able to take in our um Lent season, this practice of reflection is healing and transformation. And then also, again, that deep understanding that we're beloved children of God. Mm. And that takes work, Mm -hmm. reminding ourselves and each other that we are beloved children of God because, uh, and that's the work that we do as a church. Like, you don't just show up here because the music's great and because the word we preach is good, but because what we do is church is getting our lives mixed up together, getting to know one another so much that we know each other's crap and terrible things and wonderful things. And so we are called as church then to remind each other of our belovedness. Um, And there are ways we have built in to do that, but ways that we have to actively practice that too. Like, so when someone is baptized or when we remember our baptism, what baptism says, baptism is the remembrance of Jesus being baptized, being washed, and then also being raised. And as Jesus comes out of the water, God's spirit speaks over Jesus like like a thunderbolt and lightning and then a bird saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when you and I enter into those baptismal waters, what is being spoken over us is the same thing that is spoken over Jesus. We radically claim, yes, God loves us so much. We are beloved children of God and God is well-pleased in us, in you and in me. And as we baptize others, we say, yes, you, you are a beloved child of God in whom God is well-pleased. So when we baptize someone in those waters, whether it's an infant or an older person, it's that recognition of their belovedness. We do it also at the communion table every week. Um, I was reminding myself in researching this that when Jesus surrounds himself at the communion table, he brings in not the greatest of the great or the brightest of the bright or the best of the best. He brings in the people who are his friends, but also they're a little effed up. And he sits them around the table and he says, this is for you. This is yours. You are beloved and welcome here. And in the Greek, it's in the imperative. It's an emphatic statement to say, you might think, because I know you're gonna deny me later, you might make a mistake after this that this isn't for you, but it is. It is emphatic, imperative. Do this because it is. It is for you, he says. Mm. We also do it when we get our lives mixed up with each other in the fact that like, we are able to be in deep, authentic, no BS relationship with each other, which no BS relationship is not easy, nor is it always fun, but it is when we sit down with one another and like are able to cry, are able to say, my life is kind of terrible right now. I kind of like Derek shared with us, I don't know where I'm going right now. Mm-hmm. We're able to sit with each other and hold each other in that, to text and say, hey, you want to go get ice cream? 
just because I know you're in a weird place right now. And you don't even have to say that, I know you're in a weird place right now. It's just, I know, and we can go get ice cream. (laughs) Or it's the emphatic thing of saying, sit here, sit next to me. No big deal, actually a big FD, big freaking deal. When we are in relationship with one another, looking each other full in the face and saying, this is for you. You belong in this chair next to me as well. And so our job as a community is getting our lives mixed up in such a way that we are able to remind each other of our belovedness. To Like when it feels like you can't remember, you can call on one of your brothers, sisters, siblings in Christ, and they will say, no, 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 no. Do not, do not shame yourself. I refuse. Get out of here, Satan, with that because you are a beloved child of God. I'm gonna hug you. Even if you don't like hugs, I'll ask for consent first, but I'm gonna hug you and tell you, you're a good person. God is well pleased with you because that's our job as a community. Amen. Amen. Will you pray with me? God who sees the inherent worth in each of us. In the waters of baptism, God, you are washing us away free from shame and guilt. And then you proclaim over us our belovedness, placing a seal over our hearts to constantly remind us of your abiding love, love that casts out all fear. May we be for one another, God, the representations of remembrance. May we be for each other, the church, looking each other full in the face, saying, go and be free, just as Jesus does for us. And so we pray in the name of our brother and friend, Jesus. Amen.